0: teenagers and just before you in your presence we, we lift them up each one of us acknowledging before your throne that whoever those kids are you love them so much more than we can fathom you know them for them and you will be the one to guide them into the future so for this time lord would you help us holy spirit would you help me that we would be uh, able to grow a little bit in stewarding the story we hand to the next generation it's in your name that we pray amen the inheritance of each generation includes the stories of those who came before. Stories are what give us context. They, they encapsulate community values. They transmit collective memory. Origin stories, in particular, answer the question, where did we come from? Which, at some point, every person asks. Now, we all have inherited stories from the past, and sometimes the stories are tied to you know, an, an individual, if we think maybe as, as Americans, there's some of those various stories, you know, Johnny Appleseed or, or George Washington or, or Harriet Tubman. Other times, the stories are of group conflicts, uh, the, the North versus the South, or of uniting conflict like the World War II effort. These shared stories impact our understanding of the families we're in, The groups we belong to the places we call home and of course that's true for our faith as well you and i will pass down a set of stories to the next generation it just depends on whether or not we realize we are passing down a particular story as I've thought about this, I'll just acknowledge uh, for an 8 a.m. class, this will be a little bit different. You know, it would be it's, it's my pastoral inclination to want to devotionalize everything right now. And I think that some of what we're going to work through may feel a little bit more like uh, like a lecture, even though uh, at, at heart, I'm not necessarily an academic. But when we think about what we're going to pass down, I started reflecting on this and I started thinking about sort of the framework. And so to begin, I want to give you a simple kind of four piece framework of the kind of faith stories that we share. And the first is the one that we disciple each other in the most. That is the global story of God and his people. And so part of, part of what we do as the people, and especially as people of the book, is to go back to the story that God has written and to make sure that the next generation understands the larger big picture story that they're a part of. Side note, does anybody remember uh, the, uh, the, Zonderv- the Zondervan's The Story, Bible and kind of year-long program? show of hands real quick if anybody yeah and and show of hands not not just if you knew about it but if your church actually used it so yeah a few few hands out there that was one example of okay let's make sure we understand we're part of a larger story not just necessarily a a set of values or a list of do's and don'ts now from a biblical i mean this is about the restoration movement so i felt like i needed a bible verse for as many things as i could find so, so the, the classic biblical example of failing to hand off the, the global story would be Judges 2.10. After Joshua's death, that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. And another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor, read those words, what he had done for Israel. So it wasn't just that they lost the relationship, it was that they lost the plot of what God was up to. It's not just that there was a God, but that this was a God who had revealed his nature in particular activities to rescue this people group out of Egypt, to to carry them through the wilderness despite the many times that they didn't believe him or claim the promised land, the first go around, the way that they should have, and yet there's a generation that, that grows up that doesn't know that story. Now, this class is not intended to address the fact that there are there are uh, real real challenges with making sure that the next generation does not grow up uh, biblically illiterate and misunderstanding what it means to be in the way of Jesus and to be part of the story of God redeeming the world and God working through his people and bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth that 's not the class we 're going to do, but that is at first uh, at first uh first part of the framework the store one of the stories that we hand down now uh to to make this to get to kind of go from 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 the big to the more particular all of us pass down a personal story this is the story of of you coming to faith in christ the person who who shared their faith with you the people previously that that influenced you Uh, From a biblical standpoint, obviously we're going to 2 Timothy 1.5 when Paul says, I am reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Paul, at the beginning of this particular epistle, wants to call back to mind for Timothy this personal story he has. Now, let me just pause for a second and say... (laughs) I, I think there are times where we criminally undervalue what it means to hand down our personal story to the next generation. Just if the the teenager uh, who maybe is in your family do do they know do they know how their grandparent came to faith in Christ. You know, sometimes you'll, you'll hear people reference like, oh man, all it takes is a couple generations and then they, they forget their names. And part of me goes, yeah, well that's happening because we have no story that would connect it with that name. They're just, they're just a, a, a placeholder on the family tree. But when we hand stories to the next generation, we give them something to carry forward, something that has a sense of identity, a sense of value that's connected to the, the person that they're related to. And so, you know, even right here, I would just, I would just say, uh, when you think about the people who are in the next generation in your life, what is the personal, are, are we making them aware that they are inheriting a personal story, the story of their, their, their parents, their grandparents? What are some of those things that are unique to, to that, that family, to that person because that's part of what's beautiful about those personal stories, is that they become part of the testimony we get to share of what God's been up to before us, and yet intimately connected to us. The third framework is one that probably gets, gets shared less, but is definitely worth mentioning, and that is, the it's in between the personal and the global, and that's the congregational story. Now, from a biblical standpoint, the story, the story of a particular congregation, a particular group locally of followers of Jesus, uh, one of the best examples, uh, I think, is in 1 Thessalonians. Where Paul writes, and he begins to kind of retell their story. He talks about the fact they become, the, the way that they received Christ through the, the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of persecution and suffering, was beca- they became a model to others. And so verse 8 says that the Lord's message rang out from you, Thessalonian church not only in Macedonia and Achaia your faith in God has become known everywhere and he, he, he says what people tell some of the story of this particular congregation they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God now for our churches I think this is, this is, again, can be sometimes one of those blind spots. It's funny. You know who's, who's actually maybe the best at telling the congregational story? It's usually church planters. It, it, you think about it. When, when church planters are, are beginning to give their report or beginning to share what God's up to, so often you hear the origin story. Boy, six years ago, we started in a living room and there were just 12 of us, you know, sitting around, sitting around our living room, praying about how we could reach this city. And then we, we went to that middle school auditorium and we were there for a couple years and man, by God's grace, we started to, you know, raise enough money to get into our own building. There's a congregational story. And it's funny, why do you have to be a young, brand new church to realize that there's value to this? But actually there's, there's great value in passing on and understanding what is the story of the group that I am spiritually most intimately connected with, meeting with most regularly. So I'll give you an example from uh, from the church that uh, that I've been at for eight and a half years. When when we showed up at at uh, uh the hills church uh in fort worth texas you know it had a long history uh, it, it, it had it had a name previously richland hills church of christ and and it had a history of starting in a little little school and i happened to get on staff right around when uh, we hit the 60th anniversary uh, of uh, of the church and and so i got to sit down uh as as part of my my job at the time and and help conduct interviews with a bunch of our elders and it was like a moment I wasn't prepared for, where all of a sudden they just started, started sharing all of these different congregational stories, moments, pivotal moments in the history of our church that I didn't, I didn't know anything about. But as a brand new person on staff, new, new to Texas, new to the church, hardly knew anybody, all of a sudden I felt intimately connected with a bigger story of what God had been up to. There's one particular moment in... Um, it was the the eighties, and um, and and there was a huge financial crisis for the church. I mean, it was in, it was in the papers, and and there there was there was a loan, and and it looked like there were some some things that were going to default, and I mean, it was a it was a bad situation, and it it involved a couple of eld- uh, elders needing to go, and and as they spoke with the bank, like really really kind of stick their neck out to to help things. uh uh, get get kind of get through that situation but in the midst of that one of the biggest crises was that they they weren't sure they were going to be able to fund all the missionaries and there there was a particular uh meeting amongst the elders where they asserted and then communicated to the church whatever happens we are not going to bring a single missionary home and they made this big public kind of statement and sacrifice and by god's grace got through that season not having to send any more any not having to bring any missionaries home or, or take or, or lessen support to those uh, those who were spreading the gospel around the world and i 'll tell you that all you know, f- you know coming up on four decades later that there is a heartbeat in our church of missions in part because that that story it may not be known by everybody in our church but there are there are people in our church, people on our staff, people on our missions committee that carry that congregational legacy and story. Now, this, uh, this is not called restor, rest, uh, congregation for a new generation. It's called restoration for a new generation. And so you can see that, that in this, in this uh, threefold framework, we're really missing a story. And that is what I, st- I mean, we're non-denominational, so I decided to be nice and call this the tribal story. <laughs> Admittedly, I'd call it the denominational story otherwise. But the question is, among our tribe, it is the tribal story that has been left largely on the shelf and widely unexamined. So it's just a few weeks ago um, that uh, I got uh, i got an email from, uh, from, Somebody in, uh, on on our staff. They were making an announcement um, about uh, about the library uh, in our church. We're we're about to do a renovation at one of our buildings, and it's it's our oldest building, and uh, and there there's a, an, a a meeting room that is called the library. Now I don't know if you can call six bookshelves a library, but for a long time we have and uh and the the announcement was, because of the renovation we need to we need to move these books, but we've really realized we're not using this library, and so we're going to we're going to just donate these books, so come look, take whatever you want, everything else is going to be given away and so i I, I went in there and, and perused i'm uh i'm a, a a book uh book lover at heart, and so i I'm, I'm walking and I'm looking at all these books that are about to be you know uh just orphans, and I'm like, I, I, it's, 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 it's like the person who loves puppies going to the, to, uh, um, you know, to the pound. It's how I felt, just walking around, but then I saw the shelf, and the shelf said church history. Now, there were, there were it was just a lone shelf with a, a small a smattering of books, and there were one or two that were kind of global church history books, but there was this little collection that were all about the restoration movement, and some of them were, were, were older, things that I, I hadn't read, didn't know were published, things I wasn't aware of. Um, well, I, I, I grabbed like almost the whole stack and, and took, it, took it to my office. And that has become a little bit of a, a working picture for me of, of some of what, where we are right now with the history of the restoration movement. It is, it is a history that has been recorded, that has been preserved and at the same time it's a history that has long sat on the shelf and been pretty pretty untold or neglected and the question is what is going to happen now is it going to be donated to kind of global church history just kind of basic american christianity collective memory something for for people who are only church church history majors who who really specialize in american church history I, is it a history that, that is going to be not just donated, but kind of, kind of cast aside and said, "You know what, we don't really use or need this anymore?" Or is it a history, a story, that is going to be rediscovered? And as a dad, I've realized, man, that, uh, that depends in part on me, and in part on you. The Restoration Movement has another name, I'm guessing, that many of you know. What is the other name for this movement? You can answer out loud. Stone-Campbell Movement. That's right. Stone and Campbell are two names of key leaders in this, uh, this movement of the American church, Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell. This shorthand for our movement draws from two historical figures pointing to a shared past and a shared story but guess what if you told uh, a teenager that they were part of the stone campbell movement in your church do you think they would know that and yeah do do they do you think they'd know that stone and campbell are are names of of people of leaders and so so let me let me just be honest when um, when i started prepping for this class i came in with a wrong presupposition I thought that it was uh, maybe part of my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation that had kind of, they had inherited our congregational story, but had decided this isn't worth sharing and had failed to hand it off to the next generation. And then when I started talking with my dad, I realized that he was not raised with this congregational story that it wasn't until he was more of an adult that he started studying and learning more about, about uh, 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 not just about Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone, but about, uh, about Abner Jones and, and Elias Smith and, 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 and these other leaders and their influence in some of the early days of the restoration movement. And so I realized that, that the way we've lived, historically speaking, in terms of shared memory, at best... The story of the Stone-Campbell movement was vaguely referenced over the last several generations. And at worst, it was as if Acts 2 happened and then there were, after 2,000 years of denominational dark ages, the Churches of Christ showed up. So I want to bring you this, this hypothesis. And I'm more than open to pushback or alternative perspectives. Maybe not in the middle of this class, but certainly right after And i'm going to start with this broad premise by and large and for several generations the churches of christ failed to pass on a shared story What they handed down was a way of doing church a set of defining values and a why we're this way talking points So our way of doing church Well, we baptize by immersion. We take communion every week We preach from the bible and come while we stand and sing and when we say sing we mean singing without instruments I mean that was a little bit of How we did church. Our Church of Christ defining values were an emphasis on the word. We are, no one would debate, people of the book. Now that's not unique to our movement, but it is defining for us. And a lot of our other defining values come from scripture and our interpretation of scripture. Governance structures, led by elders, gender roles, worship style, the value of family and fellowship, a passion for reaching the lost. Again, if you listed those out, there's a lot of other christian movements that are cooking the same kind of ecclesiological chili but if you go to a chili cook-off you're going to taste a lot of different flavors right and we had our own kind of church christ spice to all of that depending on the church christ you grew up in you might say we put a little legalistic heat on our church chili or you might say we did everything so decently and in order that we stuck to the recipe on the can with our why we're this way talking, yes, that was an extended chili joke, why, with our why we're this way talking points, we basically had a verse for everything, right, why do you baptize like that, Acts two thirty-eight. why do you have elders, go to Titus 1, why don't you let women preach, well, Paul said, and so on, so that's what we were given, that's certainly, to be more candid, that's certainly what my generation was given, a way of doing church, our defining values, our very own church chili recipe and talking points for why we're this way. But at the same time that we were handed this, we were also riding a a, a larger uh, multi-decade wave of what many called the grace movement, when voices like Jimmy Allen and Lynn Anderson and others fought back against the legalism and sectarianism that plagued a lot of our churches. And as this grace-based message spread... It had unintended consequences. Because one of the defining marks of the churches of Christ, for a long time, according to uh, historian Richard Hughes, it was about 100 years that there was a sense that not only are we restoring the one true church, but that means if you're going if, if to get saved, you need to be part of the one true church. Sub Subtext is, if you're not with us, you're going to hell. And you can have autonomous congregations... And keep the tribe together with a message like that. Because everybody wants to go to heaven. But once grace shows up. Well let's ask the question this way. What happens when you raise a generation. With a set of distinctives that used to be absolutely necessary. Or you might go to hell. And instead you raise them in the way of grace. With a more inclusive way of doing church. And a broader view of the kingdom. What happens is I can count on one hand the number of youth group kids i grew up with who are still attending a church of christ now i could give you a lot more names of people i grew up with who are still followers of jesus but we were discipled into the kingdom but out of the movement now my first experience venturing outside our movement for weekly worship was in college I started looking around for churches, and part of my criteria was that the church could not be named after the road it was on or the town it was in. After being at Providence Road Church of Christ for a long time, I was ready for a different, different kind of church name, which basically meant I was looking for a different type of non-denominational church, the kind with a band. Well, the one that I showed up at, uh, they were in between ministers at the time. I didn't know a lot uh, about kind of their, their theological background, and all of a sudden, the next uh, next uh, minister came in, and he happened to be a, a very reformed guy. Uh, he, uh, his name is Sam St- Dr. Sam Storms. He used to teach at Wheaton, and he was a great preacher, uh, godly man, uh, but he was, uh, he was very reformed. He, he was buddies with John Piper, and, uh, and so all of a sudden, I found myself kind of being exposed to some of uh, the reformed movement, um, uh, you know, unsuspectingly. And I started noticing that in a bunch of these sermons, it was like you, you, you couldn't get hardly get through a sermon without Martin Luther being quoted or John Calvin. If it wasn't one of them, it was Jonathan Edwards. If it wasn't that, it was a story about Spurgeon. It, it, was like, it was like there was just all of these references tied to this particular movement. Every fall, there was some reference to the Reformation event of the ninety five theses nailed to the door uh, th- 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 it was It was interesting that this particular group had a very shared story, and what I noticed was that their shared story fused who they were with what they believed. It was a story that had been retold often and it was her- inherited afresh with each gener- generation Now this is not just true of the reformed community in fact it's far more true for other religious communities around the world Jews Muslims Catholic and Orthodox churches Mormons and many others but as a college student I'm just getting my first glimpse of this and so in light of all of that this this uh you've been patient to kind of listen through this framework so far and yet probably you're wondering okay but but what is the actual story that you want to to hand to your your two kids Taylor what's the story you want to tell And before I before I tell you that story, I want to make sure you understand something. The story that I want to hand down is not history, but collective memory. What do I mean by that? Well, history are the actual events, the facts, the detailed account as best we know how it really took place. But collective memory is that is the the memory of a group of people passed to the next generation Collective memories are shared representations of a group's past based on a common identity. Put more simply, co- collective memory isn't necessarily exactly how it happened, but it's maybe how we experienced it or how we see it now. So uh, an example of this, uh, I'm, I'm an NBA fan, and um, you know, you've know you got Michael Jordan uh, in, uh, in the finals, and it's a critical game five, and he is sick. And he has this incredible flu game that it's later talked about. I mean, it has to be carried off the court. Now, the, the, the history of the flu game would be exactly how many, how many points did he score? 38. You know, how, how many minutes did he play? What were his stats? Uh, if, if you really want to get into the history, then in the documenti- documentary, The Last Dance, he was delivered a pizza. And so he was actually, it wasn't the flu game. It was the bad pizza game. But wh- whatever it is, but the collective memory is this heroic moment of, One guy mustering all his will to carry his team to victory. Now, for our restoration movement, I didn't prepare this class to tell you that all of us need to be church history experts of the restoration (laughs) movement. But to consider what is the collective memory, what is the story, as I've reflected on it, Some of what I want to tell my kids is that the story of the tribe that they're part of begins on the heels of revival sweeping across America. That our story is still part of a bigger story of what God was doing. Two men, Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell, had started separate movements that were aiming for the same thing. The unity of all believers through the renewal, restoration of the church. Specifically, the restoration of the early church. They dreamed of a union of all believers and pushed back against denominational division. And they joined in their work, which began the Stone Campbell movement. Part of what I want my kids to know is that this happened despite plenty of differences, especially between these two. Stone, as historians tell it, lived much of his life in poverty. Campbell died an extraordinarily wealthy man. Stone wasn't much of an academic, and a lot of the pastors who trained under him were pretty undereducated. Campbell, on the other hand, founded his own university. Stone was a fiery preacher with a charismatic flair. Campbell was a tactical lawyer who credited the Holy Spirit with inspiring the Bible, but not much else. That little little, uh, back and forth explains in part why churches of Christ, sometimes uh, church of Christ, members of the church of Christ will call themselves Campbellites, but I have never heard a church of Christ member call themselves a stoner. It's just... It's just the reality of of the way that the influence of the systemic mind of Alexander Campbell, if we can just systematize this and get the rules and put it all in place. Now, that's, that's how our movement began, forged in the fires of revival, willing to overlook differences for the sake of unity, dreaming of the church God intended made manifest on earth. They were people of the book, people who did their utmost to understand and obey what God had instructed in the New Testament. And so they baptized for the forgiveness of sins, just like Peter said. They took communion on the first day of the week, just like Paul told the Corinthians. But along with the passion and idealism of the movement's beginning, I want my kids to learn from the missteps as well. Mistakes can be redeemed when they become warnings for future generations. Alexander Campbell was a lawyer who literally compared the Bible to the Constitution. For him, it was a legal document as much as it was a theological document. It was a divine rule book. Seriously, Alexander Campbell put the legal in legalism, I promise. And it is not hard to see how our movement drifted in that direction. Despite being a movement with unity as one of its central goals, our tribe got really good at division at disfellowshipping, at calling other people out. There, uh, one of our, our restoration movement publications back in the day was called the Heretic Direct Detector. That is a real publication. Someday I hope to tell my kids about being in college and driving up to meet my dad at the Tulsa International Soul Winning Workshop. The year was 2006. Max Lucado was preaching along with a Christian church pastor named Bob Russell. The amphitheater was packed, and the singing was powerful. And that night, another story from our tribe was told. For me, this was a, this was a, a watershed moment because I felt like it was one of the, the first times that I was hearing some of the tribal story with such a big group. A hundred years before, in 1906, the U.S. Census recognized a split in the Restoration movement between the churches of christ and the uh, disciples of christ the christian church they made categories for the christian church and the churches of christ the unity movement had failed at least in the unity part and a hundred years later there was a new movement to heal and embrace each other as restoration family that was that's a night i'm I'm not going to forget It's a night that fuses some of my personal story with the tribal story I want my kids to understand. Because it was a moment when I realized I was part of a bigger story. And this was a story that in a way belonged in part to me. I want my kids to hear those stories. And. And I, I was really encouraged seeing on some of the program, you may have noticed that, that uh, later today and I think also tomorrow, there's a couple of other classes that are trying to tell some of these stories. Try, trying to give us a, a glimpse into the, the past. That for uh, often an a historical movement, um, or maybe at our worst, an anti-historical movement. Uh, that there, that there's these these great opportunities to hear, especially from people who maybe have uh, better uh, better accreditation than me, to be able to to share and tell some of these stories from our restoration past. I think Mike Cope is doing one later that's on the story of the churches of Christ. And, um, and I'm trying to remember what the other one, uh, other one was. I think it's with John Mark Hicks and a couple of others who are looking at photos inside the Restoration Movement and telling the story of those photos. So worth checking out. But I want my kids to hear these stories. And yet to all of that, one might offer a big fat, so what? I was talking with uh, a man in our church. He's a dad and he grew up Church of Christ. And I, I was telling him of some of what I was going to, shared this morning, and, and as, I, as I kept sharing, I see his, his brow was furrowing a little bit more each as, as I went on. And he asked this question, what is the benefit to your kid's heart that they know this story? I thought that was a great question. Why is it worth telling? Well, for one, it gives my children the benefit of hearing shared memory instead of inheriting willful amnesia. I want my kids to know that they are part of something God has been doing in this little corner of the kingdom that is far bigger than they realize. I want them to know that what they are a part of is more than a set of convictions or a particular worship style. I want them to know that the story they're a part of is as big as the kingdom of God and as personal as their great-grandfather and grandmother TJ and Mildred Walling. I want their minds to know to have wisdom that is informed primarily by God's word, but also partially by an understanding of history. I want them to have learned parts of the story that would help them in the future root out legalism. I want them to learn parts of the story that keep them from being surprised when old cycles rear their head in a faith community. I want them to be aware of the past so that they can be wise in the present and watchful for the future. Now, I could be wrong about what I'm going to say next, and everything about the future is under the banner of the Lord's will. But I anticipate a world in which the forms of church that have been popularized and commodified in the modern West are not going to be the forms that are most effective or beneficial for the next couple generations. And I want them to have learned from the story they are joining for how to navigate change and to let go of man-made traditions well. I want them to carry an inheritance that is both timeless in the ancient faith and timely for equipping them to meet their moment in history as God empowers them. So my kids may never attend a Church of Christ as adults. And honestly, that's okay my goal is not that they carry the brand of church of christ my desire is that carrying the story forward helps them grow as followers of jesus filled with the spirit of god which is part of what we'll talk more about tomorrow and how 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 does the holy spirit play into this future for the next generation and among those stories i do want to share one one personal story that i want to hand down today here I want to show you uh, this is a photo that somebody brought to me uh, at my church uh, a couple years ago said that it was from a, a gathering of uh, I think mainly California uh, uh, ministers I don't know if this was a, a, a tent meeting or, or some other kind of gathering but in the bottom right hand corner it's my grandfather T.J. Walling Thomas Jefferson Walling good American name right there now, I was close to my grandmother, uh, but my, my grandfather uh, died. He had a brain tumor, and it was when my dad was in college, so uh, decades before I was born. And his name was Tom, but he often went by TJ. TJ worked uh, on a ranch uh, and an orange grove owned by a man named Lee Nickerson. Mr. Nickerson didn't have a son. Uh, he had some daughters, but he didn't have a son. And, and you know over time t j became kind of the go to for just about anything that Mr. Nickerson needed, becoming like a son to him my My grandpa eventually became the foreman of the orange grove. But when my grandfather came to faith he he felt a call to ministry there were there there were people around him who started saying you know tom you've 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 got a gift this is something that you should step into." And TJ went back to Mr. Nickerson, and he said, I, I've, I've, I've got to go. I know this is what God wants me to do. And I found out just a few years ago that when my grandfather felt this call to ministry, that Mr. Nickerson actually tried to convince him to stay and said, you know what? If you just, 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 why don't you just part-time it? Why don't you just kind of be a, vo, vo, you know, like, like bivocational? So you just preach on the weekend, work the grove during the week, and to sweeten the offer, Mr. Nickerson said that he would build my grandfather a new house and set him up with around seven acres of property from the grove. Basically, he was offering to, 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 to help my grandfather have something sustainable and be set for life. And as a 28-year-old husband with two kids like me and a middle school education, my grandfather Turned it down and went into full time ministry. I got curious and I looked up the estimated value of seven acres of real estate in Southern California. I almost threw up. But what my grandfather handed down to me was so much more valuable than any piece of land. He helped hand down the story of God redeeming the world. And my grandfather's choice has become a lasting and treasured story that i want to give my kids so my encouragement to you is to reflect on to pray and to be intentional about what stories are you handing down Man, for some of those, that, the, the, those teenagers in your life who are old enough to kind of hear and begin to process the story, they may not overtly seem grateful or interested. But later, late, later these may become treasures for them because they realize they don't have to be, oh, they don't have to be spiritual orphans who wonder, where am I from? Why am I here? Why is our church like this? And the thing I I most want you to hear is that I think that part of the the value of handing down a story is that it allows the next generation to inherit that and continue to adapt and change without feeling like we're fighting all of the previous things that weren't stories but were (laughs) the church chili recipe. Because as we've seen, It's not just for the next, this isn't just happening for the next generation. This is already happening in our generation. It's already happening before our eyes. And so what I want my kids to understand about what it means to be Church of Christ won't initially be found Alexander Campbell style in in a list of uh, COC laws, but I want it to be found in a narrative that's given to them that they can walk forward with hand in hand with God, and the Holy Spirit, and the church that they're part of. Amen. And so, as we conclude, I know that, that this has uh, kind of gone in a lot of directions, um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play to my pastoral inti- instincts, and I do want to have a, a moment of devotion as we finish. I was reflecting there's so many places in scripture where we can find inc- confidence and encouragement that God is at work in each and every moment in history and generation. I thought about uh, Acts 17 when when Paul is preaching and says that that, that God not only kind of set the boundaries but he, he set the times and places and so God is not surprised by what the next generation will have to endure or walk into. But then I I, I thought about this beautiful hope and promise in Psalm 102. It's at the end of the psalm. And if you uh if you look at this later, Psalm 102 is actually it begins and it is a lament. Uh, a lament that's being poured out by someone who has grown weak. It's an interesting kind of subtitle for the psalm. It's one of the only psalms that that doesn't say who wrote it or what it is, but says Who is this for? Who's this prayer for? And in some ways, as a movement, we're seeing our numbers, statistically speaking, seem to dwindle. We're seeing people who come to faith in Christ, but then leave our churches to go somewhere else. And in some ways, maybe part of this prayer is appropriate for us. The end of the psalm, As your years go on through all generations. Speaking to God. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be discarded. Will you read these, uh, these next words with me? But you remain the same, and your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. God, this is our prayer. more than being part of a particular movement in one corner of the world in one part of your kingdom our prayer our prayer of renewal and restoration for the next generation is that they would live in your presence that they would be established before you God, we we confess our desire to want to control that outcome, and we hold before you open-handed our prayers and our supplications for the next generation, asking wholeheartedly that you help them become people of renewal, people with a spirit of unity, and most importantly, people who know you and who know Jesus. And in your hands, they can be most trusted. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you all for being here. God bless.